Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. The day before the awards ceremony at Cannes, Nicholas Rippold brought critics together for a second roundtable about the hits and misses of this year's edition. Film Comment contributors Jonathan Romney uh, write the Film of the Week column in Film Comment. Jordan Cronk, I'm a uh, critic and programmer based in LA and I'm covering the fest for uh, Film Comment. And Amy Taubin, also a contributing editor to Art Forum, discussed new works by David Lynch, the Safdie brothers, Roman Polanski, Lynn Ramsey, Sean Baker, and others. Here's their conversation, which, like the first roundtable, was recorded inside a lively cafe. I guess this is the Saturday, so it's, it, basically everything is shown. All that's left is things that are going to be shown again, and the state we're in is somewhat despairing. <laughs> and fatigued. fatigued. And here is Amy right now to, oh, uh, Hello. <laughs> to perk us up. We were just, we were just uh, talking about our general just state of despair. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. You mean our state of despair about the world, which is now joined to that of the film festival? Oh boy, yeah. We're just the film festival for now. <laughs> we'll tackle the world in a separate podcast. <laughs> Why should they be different? <laughs> you were feeling that filtering through everything of the world? Well, yeah, because, yeah. None of the, because most of the films are not even compelling enough to keep your attention off your iPhone for uh, two hours. I know, the world was kind of, I mean, the, the Kushner thing yesterday is kind of more riveting than anything you've seen well, on that screen. Wasn't, I mean, that story's been out for now for two months, but it's just taken that long to get to the Washington Post. I'm curious what you guys thought of the Safdies film, which seems like something different in competition. Yeah, it was very different. It was the first film in competition which made me really wake up. I mean, I think it had more energy than the rest of the competition films put together. It was very retro in its own way. You know, it seemed to be channeling some early Michael Mann right down to the kind of pastiche Tangerine Dream score by uh, One of Tricks Point Never, which I have to say was relentless. And in the first couple of minutes, I was thinking, God, I'm not going to stand a moment more of these screaming guitars. <laughs> but, you know, it is relentless and it powers the whole film and and the effect is extraordinary I mean it's a fantastic comedy of errors and riveting story about a guy who constantly 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 does the wrong thing but he does the wrong thing because he's so alert and he seizes whatever opportunity he can to get out of one sticky situation by throwing himself into another so this is the one uh, in which Robert Pattinson plays a man who um, has tried to uh, pull a bank raid with his brother, who ends up in hospital. He then tries to spring his brother uh, from uh, the critical ward, only to find that the guy he's sort of pulled out of the wheelchair in bandages is someone else entirely. And you know, and that's where it starts. But I mean, it, it's it's. You know, consistently entertaining. They just drum up this sort of ferocious energy. The, the pace keeps going all the way through. I mean, it's troubling. You know, it's a kind of the descent into a kind of world of desperation. And, you know, they, they credit street casting at the beginning, which I think is really important. But it's also, it's also very funny. And it is, you know, I hate this, um, you know, that kind of journey metaphor. Movie takes you through a journey. But it is sort of, you know dare I say it, a, quote, thrill-packed ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, this afternoon's film is the best 
film by young filmmakers here. Yeah. I mean, there are veteran films, but that and uh, Sean Baker's Florida Project. And they're both such oddball American independence. I mean, they're the opposite of the kind of American independence that usually lands here, which is more like a three-act European art film. And they're both the same in the sense that they have very skillfully underneath fairly traditional plotting, but it's buried down there so that it carries you forward but really is buried in what's going on that grabs you all the time. Yeah. Uh, the subject where, I mean, I talked to them yesterday, you know, I know them, and they're going to, they're going to make their next film, Scorsese, yeah. and it is, again, like this, it's a, 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 it's a whole movie. The one they're doing with Scorsese is fairly autobiographical because their father worked as a, a runner in the diamond market in oh, New York, and that's what it's about. But this one, they grew up in Queens. These are not strange people to them. And it's, it's a fantastic mm. film. Does it feel like belated recognition for this kind of New York indie scene? I feel like that selection was overdue for a film like this. You know, the Sean Price Williams shot it, the mm. yeah. generation of filmmakers, let's say. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that it's going to Venice, too. And I know the Kansen wanted it. Yeah. Um, they had uh, multiple choices here. No, I think it's a fairly unique film. I don't think this is what American indies are doing now. I mean, I think this this is a much better film than anything they've done before, mm-hmm. although a lot of people think that the one just before mm-hmm. this, the one about uh, the heroin addicts in New York, were the films to, was uh, a more interesting film. I don't uh, There is another, since you said that, you know, this was one of the young films of Cannes. There is another film which struck me, which really stood out as being young and fresh. First film by a French woman director, a writer called Léonore Serrai. It's called Jeune Femme. And it has a fantastic performance by an actress I've never come across before called Laetitia Doche. And basically, she is the film, but it's also brilliantly scripted. And it's a comedy, but it's a very uncomfortable comedy with, with a, a, you know, a quite a disturbing edge. It's basically about a young woman whose older lover has given her the boot, and, and she's unravelling in a very spectacular way. It's a very flamboyant film. It's a kind of bizarre performance in which, at one, you know, on one level, she's totally clowning around. And on the other, she's falling apart in a very dark way. There's an, ex- you know, she... she adopt someone else's identity you know she meets someone on the metro who says oh you're my you're my old friend from school days and she pretends to be her and you know all of that but, uh, and she kind of improvises her way through life you know catastrophically but but in a very funny way at one point she had to gate crash a fancy dress party so she borrows from someone the inside of a toilet roll winds her hair around it and goes to Amy Winehouse and there's there's a lot of riffing she has an interview for a job in a kind of underwear shop which seems to be and she gets it yeah and it seems to be you know there seems to be a lot of improv in there it's very hard to tell and at first I thought oh this is this she could be, you know, something like the French Greta Gerwig, you know. Is this a French Francis Ha or Françoise Ha? But it's actually more than that, you know. It's very, very distinctive. It kind of hits a note of despair and madness, but sort of hope, you know. This, this woman's 
kind of inventiveness and strength of character kind of still pulls her through these horrors in a very sort of exuberant way. And it's just explosive, you know. Um, it, it's in a familiar French mould. I've seen other films like that before. But it just does it, you know, brilliantly. It was I a real blast. just like this film a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't hate it, and it's certainly better made than... This film is full of one person, this festival, one person shows. Yeah. There's this one. There's this Tunisian film about the young woman who's been raped, which is like nine long sequences of horror where they have a terrible actress who can't do anything, so they've decided to just let her go throughout. You can't see that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> she, she has to walk around in yeah. one frozen posture of both defense and horror. And I found both of these films very much alike and very uninteresting. And the other film that's just like this, unfortunately, is in competition, and it's the British film we saw last night. Oh, well, right. What? Um, what is it called? Uh, you were never really, really, really here. You were never really here. Lynn Ramsey. Which is another one-person show, yeah, but this yeah. is not a woman. This is a guy. Yeah. But there are an awful lot mm. of kind of one person against the world or one person yeah. psychodrama. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. these kind of solitary but flights. The low-budget one-actor film, and if they hit the actor well, it's a good deal, and if they don't, it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, what that's interesting about Good Time is that you know, Robert Pattinson, and I, I mean, his, his character in the movie is almost like he's an actor in, in real life. He's a shapeshifter, mm -hmm. and it's like he enters every single situation, and then his like, first question in his mind is, what does this person want? And then he gives that or right. does that, and that makes for a movie that's constantly changing throughout. Um, but yeah, when it's something more like the uh, Lynn Ramsey movie, it's not quite as satisfying. Yeah, and the casting in the Safdie Brothers movie of the... Uh, Lesser parts is brilliant, and oh, yeah. the, all those people are just the, the Bill Bondsman and the Bill Bondsman street cast. And, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> the African American fourteen-year-old who's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so, so the Lynn Ramsey film is very old because it's been getting rave reviews since last night. Um, I sort of feel I want to reserve judgment because I know that she's going to at the very least be fine-tuning it. And I could almost feel that I would like this film a lot better with, you know, just certain kind of rhythmic changes, aspects of it that, you know, maybe it will turn into a film that sometimes it's details that bring something alive. But I'm still not sure. I mean, I recognise the brilliance of the execution. It dispenses, not entirely, but pretty comprehensively with, with dialogue. And it really is a, a film told in visuals and in rhythm. And the score by Johnny Greenwood is terrific. And Joaquin Phoenix has this very powerful bodily presence throughout. But there are certain things in that I couldn't buy. I couldn't buy the idea of a tormented backstory, which kind of reveals itself in a series of flashes. I couldn't buy what I felt was a very glib, uh, even, you know, almost kitsch uh, representation of paedophilia, you know, the kind of the luxury paedophile ring, which is kind of imprisoning these girls in, you know, kind of, you know, prettified rooms. And there's at one moment you see a man's hand move the furniture, a little rocking chair in the doll's house. And I thought, hmm, this just, it, it kind of hit a false note. And then somehow when the film ends, I almost felt like, you know, a film hadn't quite materialised mm -hmm. from this mm -hmm. kind of accumulation of, you know, brilliant, intense moments. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait and see. I will certainly see it again. There, there, you know, I, have to, I want to see that again for one reason, because in a way I haven't felt I've seen it yet. Otherwise, there's one film in competition, one only, that I feel I absolutely need to see again, and that's Los Nietzsche's A Gentle Creature. I agree. No, I, I liked it a lot, too. Oh, that's Although, another one-person show, too. That's true, woman, yeah. A tormented true. woman. Well, it's not. Steadfast. Well, it has many characters yeah. around them, but she's this kind of monotone in the middle of the film. But she's surrounded by this kind of pollulating craziness of life and this fast casting, and that's kind of street casting um, taken to an extreme. I mean, you know, he has these armies of kind of carousing drunks, and, you know, it it struck me as, you know, there's this vision of the entire world, or the entire Russia at least, as a kind of prison. You know, it's a prison that has no outside walls. It engulfs the whole world. And it's not just Dostoevsky, and it's based on Dostoevsky, but it's, it's Kafka as well. But it really felt to me very authentically in a tradition of the Russian imagination, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Bulgakov. And when people were recoiling at that very long dream sequence at the end, I was thinking, well, yeah, it is incongruous, and this is a jarring shift of tone, but it felt absolutely right to me because it feels part and parcel of a certain kind of imagination which historically, you know, has dealt with, you know, social and economic despair by recording to a very sort of ugly, grotesque form of farce. I mean, it's, you know, that's the most Russian film I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, the director, of course, Ukrainian. Right, right. Did anyone see the other Russian film, the Closeness? Uh, I did. You did? Yeah. Which, I mean, it was the first film, and I thought it was really pretty impressive. It didn't all... I wasn't completely enthralled the entire time, I would say, but it's got some incredible sequences in it, including, like, the last 20 minutes, I thought, were yeah. very, pretty unique. Yeah, that, that's interesting, because it, 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 it obviously takes place in the same kind of screwed-up <laughs> Russian universe or, or general former Soviet Republic universe as uh, the Loznitsa does, but it's very bounded by this, this, this family and this particular tribal ethnic milieu. Um, I liked it quite a bit, even though there are rough edges in it. Yeah. Um, and But that's also almost becomes kind of about a particular, another young heroine who's just struggling against something you know, insurmountable and just going to be ground by force, ground down by forces out of her control. Yeah. But it's a great tough girl movie. It is. You know, yeah, she's yeah. incredibly strong, yeah. and really, she has a the, the actress whose name escapes me, but is you know, she's, it's, I think it's a she's worked on stage with us as a first oh, film sure. role, I believe. But she kind of comes across in a very sort of muted but hard edged way. It's, you know, she looks like her as well, but she does kind of come across as the Russian Kristen Stewart. I mean, I think there's there's an incredible sort of quiet ferocity. Yeah, and it's a great performance. And one of the great things about it also is how brilliant, brilliant it's shot because it uses Academy ratio to establish the parameters that is very narrow, bounded universe. And actually, when you see the sky for the first time, it's kind of shocking. And I think the energy of the film kind of dissipates. It's almost as if everything has been released, you know, this kind of enclosed energy has been released. But it is, you know, it's visually conceived quite brilliantly. And it, it's, it's a very controlled film. It's fantastic. Yeah. That was also a good film on just 
the, the kind of porous boundary between like dysfunctional family and just closeness, I guess, which is what the, the title is about. She has this kind of, I think in your review, quasi-incestuous bond with her brother. Just they're kind of seem to be inappropriately like uh, close and uh, on close terms with each other. I just thought they were just kind of being gross with each other, which, which is like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, but she's clearly bitterly jealous of his fiance. She doesn't yeah. like it when you know his engagement <laughs> is announced. Yeah. yeah. Did we talk about the bomb back last time? I don't think we did. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it either. That, that came to mind just because of the dysfunction topic, but also also the idea of movies that are so specifically in a particular place that I kind of wonder what the experience is for people who don't live in that place. I thought of that with Jeune Femme because I, I didn't I didn't really respond to that movie and I thought maybe if I grew up in Paris I would have, but I don't know. And Marowitz's story is very much felt like I was recognizing like, you know, street corners and, and just very weird specific habits knowing why someone might like a Beastie Boys song. So, you know, it's just like very ludicrously specific things. Um, but I mean, I, I was I was happy with it despite it having Adam Sandler and the sympathetic lead. <laughs> there are um, a few films here which, which, you know, prominent films which seem to be essentially stylistic exercises, you know, more or less satisfyingly. I mean, I found uh, Fatih Akin's thriller, sort of character thriller, um, in The Fade. I found it perfectly acceptable, although there wasn't really a great deal there, but, you know, on a Thursday morning or wherever it was when the festival of the competition has thoroughly exhausted you, you know, it was kind of a palate cleanser. Um, the Beguiled, I thought, was exquisitely done, but I came out thinking this was not a film that in any way needed to be made, you know, and it was, uh, you know, it's a film I will instantly forget. Ozon's L'Amant Double is almost as if he's shuffled a pack of cards, dealt them in a particular order, and, and he's constantly saying, look what I'm doing, but it's another of those tricksy Ozon films where he's not really, you know, giving of his best because he's he, he's such an expert by now that, you know, he can play all these sort of Palmer-esque erotic mind games and it is clearly, you know, a bagatelle de divertissement and, and again, you know, you will forget it instantly. Uh, the one film that I kind of thought in that vein, you know, simply uses its expertness in quite a fascinating way, although it simply, again, falls apart by the time we get to the end. And I won't be thinking about it tomorrow morning, but Polanski's film based on a true story, which... You won't be thinking about it tomorrow? I'm not sure I will. I'm not sure I will. I mean, I don't think it's Ghost Rider, but there's an effort to make the opposite film from Ghost Rider. I, I, I really like this film a lot. It may simply be that, aside from about five or six films, I just thought everything, including the things you're mentioning as going by the numbers and knowing how to make a film, I just thought were totally inept. And Polanski is never inept. You know, you can like some of them more than others. It was just such a relief to see a traditional film made really well that you as might be saying something. Well, it is saying something. One of the things that actually I liked about it is, I mean, it comes across as, you know, a sort of home invasion, identity theft uh, female drama. I'm calling it a single right female because she's a writer and the woman is, a you know, her, her doppelganger, acolyte, 
night uh, stalker, whatever she is, is a ghostwriter significantly. But actually, it's you know, and it's based on a on a novel by uh, Delphine Le Vigant, which was about the experience of Writing having problems novel. following up her previous yes. novel, which is like the one the character has written in the film. It, it's actually very good. You know, you think you're getting single white female, you think you're getting misery. In fact, it very cleverly plays with all those familiar tropes, and it's it's a brilliant exercise in misdirection all the way through. But it's brilliant about the problems of writing, about the way that writers, particularly professional writers, novelists, or people in, in the public eye, end up cluttering their lives with avoidance strategies. You know, well, I'm not writing my next novel because I've got to promote the last one, or I'm doing too much research and I'm never going to start, and etc., etc., etc. And it's almost, I mean, I thought in a way it's kind of Polanski's own creed de cœur about, you know, the downside of being in the public eye. Um, and it's, it's written by, or co-written by Livia Assayas, who, you know, he knows knows his genre inside out so all these kind of you know apparent cliches well you know he knows what he's doing with them I mean you this movie is very open to interpretation and no one seems to have interpreted it the way I did but I think the entire movie from the moment of the first book signing is the book she is writing as she is writing it there is nothing and so it's about the power of fiction and there's all this issue about and the the fact that we get a little bit yeah. scared and we get yeah. right. think that this might be another person invading mm. the life and all that. It's about the power yeah. of fiction. And, and without giving too much away, it's sort of the female fight club. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's beautiful like this. And where I had a problem with that uh, trope in Fight Club, I had no problem here. It's the same, oddly, it's the Déplaise uh, film, which is also a film about a movie as it occurs in the imagination of the audience. But it was a very satisfying way to end the festival. Yes, it was definitely, you felt you were finally being served a meal that had been properly prepared with expert hands and had a lot of different tastes expertly placed in it. Yeah, yeah. Does that... Let's just say also, Ava Green and Emmanuel Zaney, both of them fantastic performances, but if you ever had doubts about Ava Green and her kind of fun fatality, uh, boy, she really, you know, every shot she's doing something different with her face and it is a real, you know, it's a precision tool that she knows how to, how to work. No, there's that, there's that great shot toward the end where she's serving she's serving soup uh, um, to Menno character and and she doesn't want it and she contorts her face. But it's a very childlike contortion, like she's kind of regressing in that moment, you know. It's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great performance. Um, but, but the topic of fiction brings me to the um, Laura Conte movie, The Workshop. I mean, that's the movie that's about a writing workshop that's run by a Parisian novelist, and and in the class are just, I guess, teenage uh, students from from a from the area. It, it takes place in La Ciotat, is that how you say that? Yeah, La Ciotat, and yeah, mm -hmm. which used to be like is it just like a shipbuilding? Used to be a shipbuilding place. Yeah. Um, but the main character, the two characters are the Parisian novelist and this fairly and ferociously talented young writer, who is, I guess. Radically right wing. Radically I mean, right wing. Scarily right. Wing. Yeah. Scarily right wing, um, but also kind of scarily not tortured by his talent. I guess he's just kind of 
being. I like the. I mean, I like you too. know, there are five of my top five, and then there's that. Oh, okay. It's it's a really interesting film because it, in some ways, it seems to be ticking the boxes about all the issues which have to be spoken about in France at the moment. So radicalization and class issues, etc., etc., and and you know, right-wing militant activism, and it's very disturbing. It's also, it's about the question of writing, it's about the question of what people should be writing now in these complicated times, and should they be writing political stories, and if so, from what position, and should they write about people they don't know, or should they write only things which produce positive images of the world situation? And it was very interesting for me this week, because there are a number of things I read about um, what seems to be happening in the publishing world is that now apparently there are such things as sensitivity readers who are employed by publishers to read novel manuscripts for problematic, you know, or sensitive issues of representation which may need to be ironed out. And it struck me that, you know, um, I mean, I happen to believe that, you know, one of the great writers of the 20th century um, who was French and a rabid anti-Semite, you know, Louis and Céline, uh, well, he wouldn't get published today. But there are all kinds of, all kinds of problems here and all kinds of issues. And I think, uh, although I couldn't believe the Kante film in any way, I felt it didn't balance up those issues really well. It is nevertheless, you know, it's satisfying. It's got a fantastic performance by Marina Foyce, who's really underrated, and a bunch of young people. So it's kind of a follow-on in, in a sense from the class. But it's absolutely the film that you would want to take, you know, a group of high school students to see and sit down and say, you know, well, let's Let's discuss the problems of, you know, of your culture. I mean, it did seem to be very uh, clued up in that respect. What about the Beguiled, which seemed to take all the problematic elements out of the original film and replace them with almost nothing interesting that I could find beyond being a beautiful movie to look at, I guess? I think it's terrible to look at. I mean, I know that she wanted it that dark, but it's so dark that you don't see the actors. You don't see the actors' faces. It's unnecessarily dark, and it errs on the side of something like 19th century accuracy, which is, which we don't know. We don't know how much light those candles gave. And, um, What's his face? Kubrick made sure that you saw the expression on Ryan O'Neill's face and on Marissa Berenson's face. Yeah. But there's a terrible script problem. I mean, it doesn't have the courage of its convictions, and it's constantly giving the nod to a 21st century audience. And there are kind of, you know, comedy lines which kind of break things apart, like when um, about to... Uh, to amputate Colin Farrell's leg, Nicole Kidman snaps in a, in, in a very kind of uh, fade down the way, mommy dearest way. Bring me the anatomy book. <laughs> um, and there's a terrible thing, you know, Borges says that in a crossword, 
clue in which the answer is chess. The one word you must not use is chess. And this film breaks that rule when Colin Farrell says something like, are you studying the art of castration? Well, duh. You know, and it kind of completely, uh, I don't believe that a Civil War soldier would have, would have said that. I, it, it doesn't have any kind of consistency to it. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is beautiful. I felt it looked exquisite, but it's kind of really empty. And also, when El Fanning appears at the beginning with, you know, a couple of stray strands of hair, you know, it's almost like the scene, is, you know, it could be sort of flashing up rebel sex part on the screen, and there is, you know, there is no subtlety about it whatsoever. So we demolish that. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, the only thing I can think is that, I mean, that it's a very um, economical length. <laughs> yeah, as was Lynn Ramsey's film, which, which comes in at yeah. 85 minutes in its present. Sure, they right. advertised it. Yeah, yeah, sure, they advertised. I guess they didn't even put the credits. Didn't have the credits ready even. Well, let's. I, I, I guess it would be nice if we could also just touch on the Kiristami. Did everyone see the Kiristami? Yeah. No. I mean, I, it's a. And it's his final film, I guess, or his final project he was working on. I think is when he passed away. Yeah. And it's essentially 24 still photographs that. I don't know if he completed them all or other people completed them. Actually, I haven't read much about it, but it's lightly animated uh, still photographs that kind of, what is it, five to seven seconds prior and after the, the image, what he thought would have happened, would have occurred before the image. And they range from, I guess the first one's a painting, but then everything else after that is kind of outdoor images, beach, no snowy landscapes, a lot of animal and natural life. And it's pretty beautiful and it felt different than everything here and just kind of calming and a place like kind of like a screensaver if you don't want to be yeah, yeah, yeah. too charitable. I mean, I thought it was an interesting project, an interesting idea, although, I mean, according to this, it seems that most landscapes involve clearing the area of animals, and then for five seconds you can do the landscape, and then they come back. And he's, yeah, he seems particularly fascinated by prose and things. I mean, it almost, it, it almost becomes like a kind of surreal exercise, you know. But, but, I mean, for a series, like a landscape series, I, like I thought of James bending a little... Yeah. I think more just out of an urge to, to see some to see some more beauty in what I was looking at because the digital manipulation is pretty handcrafted, let's say. Yeah. So I mean, there's one point where these are they, are they wolves or, or, yeah. de or the deer that are walking in snow, and it's just it's done so poorly, like the, yeah, um, and they're little things. So it just didn't really feel like completely polished to to the extent that he, he, he might. Digital manipulation. I was shocked at how bad I think Twin Peaks is, because I was a huge fan of Twin Peaks, at least the first season, I kind of went away from it the second, uh, and I only went to see it because I, um, I had seen Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, which while I don't think it's as good as her first season, is great, and we, everyone in the theater stayed for six hours, I don't think anyone left. We had candy bars and two breaks. They gave us candy bars and water, and we just sat in our seats. Sure, and no one yeah. even went to pee if they didn't think they could get back. And it's really good, although it's messy, and some things don't get finished off, and it looks like there's going to be a third season. But and and 
Being in Sydney is not absolutely awe-inspiring, like being in the forests and lake country of New Zealand. But this is, but this was amazing. So I thought I'd be a completist. I'd go see two uh, episodes of David Lynch. I just think it's perfectly dreadful. I mean, he didn't have a single idea, and every idea he had, he digitally milked so that it repeated with a, a shattering glass, uh, uh, a face coming out of nowhere for two minutes on end in unconvincing digital. It was like the digital version of um, Mystery Science Theater, only in bad digital. It, I just found it appalling, the French door. Yeah, I like it quite a bit, but I think it's interesting. All right. Find it appropriate that it did play here because it, it did feel to me like a piece of cinema that he's obviously he said he's crafting it as an 18 hour film and there is no break in the. I mean, obviously, everyone's watched it by the time we're talking about this, but we saw it a little oh, bit later than, than other people. But yeah, that was interesting that how it played as a complete thing, I, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I did appreciate about it was just how much he works on individual line readings for like every single. In the line. That was just to an extent that I, I wish I would see in some other, other movies here. Not that that was a movie, but it, I, it was also just strange seeing a TV show blown up to that size. I watched it partly for the novelty of seeing something screened that you'll never see screened again because it's always hard to screen things because you can't get rights for broadcast things. So it was interesting from, from that respect. But that almost made the you know, digital stuff worse because then it's huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm a very big fan of Inland Empire, which oh, yeah. is the worst digital. And it's not, it's free digital. Right. You know, it's basically, what was that? High 8. Right. Um, or the very first digital camera. And it's painful to watch. I think it's a great film. Because what it's about is really powerful. Yeah. Well, it's actually interesting thinking about Inland Empire is like a, I don't know, it's almost like it's the, an or precursor to all these journey films you've been talking about, some person's journey just where they're in completely lost. Although there are other strands in that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of part of what's going on there. Are you going to keep watching it? Maybe. Probably not. No. Yeah. I mean, I might, you know, at a certain point go and fast forward through all of them, but, um, <laughs> which might help. I don't know. Yeah, I've it gets more Inland Empire-y from here, so I don't know if that's an incentive at all. I'll catch it when I can. Yeah. Um, did, did anyone want to indulge in any sort of final kind of, you know, um, predictions? Oh, right, yeah. This for you change. know, the winners were announced in the, the fortnight. Yes, yeah, so that's true. And, yeah. and what, what were they? Well, first film, A Chambre, uh, the Italian film. Yes. Yeah. Um, Chloe Zhao's film for... Uh, the writer. I, yeah. That's either best director or best film. And The Gorel. Which I think The Gorel and Vinnie Tide, yeah? Like best French film or something? Yeah, yeah but yeah. they're only showing The Gorel. Oh, they're only showing The Okay. Denis again. That's so. for sure? Oh. That's what it says on the website. Oh, uh, because I wanted to see The Denis again. Oh, well. I'm guessing at this point for the Palm Door, I, I feel, I mean, the film that I thought stood out of competition for me, I 
like it to be the Loznitsa. I think that's kind of the strongest and edgiest statement in a way. Uh, but I think the film that will probably win, and I don't think anyone could complain, will be 120 Beats by Robin Combio, which is a very, in some ways, traditional film about uh, French actors. And it's um, got an extraordinary uh, intensity of performance from an ensemble cast. And I think it would be a great gesture, but you know, by no means tokenistic, but it would be a very strong gesture to give an acting award to the entire cast because it's one of those rare films where everyone, you know, it's a very democratic film and it's, uh, it's very strong and compassionate. I can imagine the directing prize going to good time because in terms of just energy, uh, it's absolutely astonishing. And maybe, you know, something for uh, The Square, but The Square didn't finally deliver. It's not a film I, I remotely want to see again uh, <laughs> yeah. because it kind of makes it. Yeah. But it is a brilliant screenplay yeah, it's and it's, as a, yeah. its conception it's very clever, just yeah. just not tight enough. Yeah. Judging by can rules, Kawase has to win something too, so that'll... Which one? She'll get a jury prize. Kawase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. She knows where the bodies are buried. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is a year where there isn't some, you know. Well, we were all wrong last year. Everyone. So we're not, we're probably year. completely wrong right. at this point. Yeah, but at least last year there was something you would be disappointed yeah. about. <laughs> I don't know. Something didn't win this year. I couldn't say. You know, I'd be particularly disappointed if Good Time didn't win, yeah. even though I like the movie. It's not going to start any arguments this year's competition. I mean, none of us have really been arguing about about everything, and. Um, some people, the, the only kind of real controversy, I suppose, in competition was Okja, which a lot of people liked. I found probably about as palatable as trying to chew on genetically modified super pork. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. super I like Okja a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but my top five was yeah. So, what, what are in your, what is in your top five? Yeah. Varda, I mean, oh, Varda above all shoulders, yeah, above those places. Yeah. Claire Denis. Garel of her day, the Safety's Good Time, mm-hmm. Sean Baker's Florida Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We never really talked about Western, which I think was the standout of UCR. Oh, um, yeah. Which I thought was. Yeah, you were a fan of Western. Yeah. yeah. Kind of 11 years of wait for uh, Chris Box's next film, and I thought it delivered this very kind of strange and mysterious uh, film about German laborers in Bulgaria kind of infiltrating a town and not treating people so well and one of them kind of you know going off on his own and uh, befriending some of the community and how the, the masculinity of that tears apart the group kind of and how they you know, band against him and how yeah. he becomes sort of an outcast. Yeah. Was that in certain regard? It's in certain regard, yeah. Yeah, that seems like a pretty I, I strong... I actually think it could win. It could, yeah. Yeah, I could, I could see that as well. But then that's one of the puzzles for me, like, why wouldn't that be in, in competition? competition. Yeah. I don't, I can't grasp it, because it's, I, it's a fully realized movie, and oh, what yeah, it yeah. sets out to do, you know? Yeah. And visually, it's great. I mean, yeah. she has an incredible sense of landscape, and a great eye for people. I mean, it's incredibly cast. You know, she uses 
I mean, they're all workers, basically. I think the guy who plays the lead, who becomes this taciturn sort of Gary Cooper figure, is either a plasterer or, you know, he worked uh, in railways or something, but or a scaffolder. But they're all, you know, in that in that mold. And it's a fantastic performance. And yeah, definitely uh, one of the, the most cohe- cohesive films. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, really, you really felt this is a film that needed to be made and she did exactly what needed to be done with it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I felt it, 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 you know, it happens to be about the kind of imbalance in the EU between different countries and without banging you over the head about it. And also about the like ever-present history, like World War II, again without banging you over the head about it. like people talk about the last time the Germans were there. And, but it, it, I just feel like it's woven in in a persuasive way. And he has a great face, I think. The main, the main guy. It's as political as a gentle creature, in a much more subtle right. and kind of a yeah, way. To- a totally different mode. Yeah, yeah, than that. yeah. So I mean, I guess it's hard to. Who can guess what will happen? I guess it could be just something. I, I, I kind of agree, Jonathan, with you that it could be 120 beats, just as a kind of consensus sort of thing, or, or you know, everyone's second pick. Or, I don't know. Well, everyone always tries to second guess, and the, the assumption is always that directors will want to uh, give the prize to something that is the opposite to what they're associated. You know, so like when Cronenberg uh, was head of a jury and the Palme d'Or went to the Dardens, everyone said, Ah, see what he's doing. So a lot of people, I think, a couple of people said to me, oh, of course, there's no way that Almodovar will give the prize to 130 beats because that's his territory. Well, I think he very possibly would because, you know, it is a great film. You know, it's, I mean, it's not a great film, but it really is a very, you know, let's say it's a film with a lot of heart and a lot of brain and, and, and a great deal of political commitment. And, you know, I think it would be a perfect Palme d'Or in terms of sort of representing the world now or the world as it has recently been um, and it's about compassion and hope and it's one of the more kind of alive films and rather sort of half dead competition. I mean my five favourite films I guess were Loznitsa, Jeune Femme, Western, Good Times and uh, well I'll go for two more, uh, Closeness, the Russian film and uh, The Vada which is just you know a pleasure and um, you know, it just kind of made you feel a bit more alive than this festival has otherwise made us feel. Yeah, I wonder if they could just give that a special prize. But I guess she already got a special prize. She'll have that. So give her another special prize. What's wrong with that? Something that won't win a prize probably is the Hong Kong Sioux film. We haven't talked about either of them, I guess. Oh, They're both typically true. nice and not strong. But yeah. I thought there was a significant difference between the two of them, though. I mean, I, I thought that the day after was more of a film than, than Claire's camera, which kind of felt more more just a, what it was. I mean, it was shot in like a week, more like a sketch. Yeah. Um, the day after, I'm actually, there, there are a couple of things I'll see tomorrow again. Um, I actually was thinking of seeing Good Time again tomorrow, just when it's not the shot in the arm, <laughs> so that I can kind of sit back and, and think about it. Um, I was just also thinking that Good Time was on Thursday. Um, uh, you were never really here, had to be on Friday because they didn't, wouldn't want it to preempt. <laughs> you know, they can only have one, like, focused person like that <laughs> with his extra-legal uh, tactics. But yeah, good time. And then I was thinking of seeing the day after again. I don't know. That's one that I... But you were... You, Jordan, you like the... Yeah, I, I find it seems to be in a slightly different phase now in his career, making really overtly emotional films. And the last few have been sort of like that, and they're less structurally playful as... The, you know, the ones he was making just a few years ago. 
but he almost seems with the day after like juggling the structures within the characters themselves like even the position of the the assistant character is right. like being shuffled in and out and uh, yeah I feel like he's kind of redirected his uh, sensibility a tiny but I mean it's it's all subtle things in his filmmaking which make it make them interesting but yeah yeah I like that he's in competition again yeah <laughs> Amy we started out Jonathan kind of gave a State of the nation, kind of a quick, quick sketch of, of how he felt. This, the selection here is maybe there's, is there a crisis or is there not a crisis? Now I'm already mischaracterizing what you said, but I don't know if you had any general. I mean, it's thoughts. been very depressing, and I think partly that's exacerbated by the fact that because of the stepped-up security, it takes so long to get into a film, and you have to come so early and. They take things away from you unpredictably, <laughs> um, and and then you're dehydrated because there's no place to get any water once you're in, and you can't bring it in. And all those things, films have to be really good to rise above that stuff. You I mean, have to stand just, out um, in blazing sun for an hour to go and see something. You know, even if you've got one of the better passes, you know, to go yeah. and see something that turns yeah. out to be. Uh, I mean, you know, one hates the sound. Ungrateful because there are lots of people who would who would love to be. So the idea of moaning, the idea of moaning because we're we're standing around waiting to watch these great films. You know, you feel bad, but it's just there's a little more friction than there has been in the past. But uh, but beyond that, I think that the selection is not good. What I'm always curious about is is there better stuff out there? Mm -hmm. We'll see in the fall, I guess. Is then it's going to have better. Films is New York going to have better? <laughs> <laughs> we might have a say in that. <laughs> yeah, it's. Are they going to come rolling in now that, that this festival is over? Yeah, yeah it's. It, I don't know. There seems to be often many sort of calculations going on in, in why films are here and where they are in, in the selection here. I, I mean, I think it's clear that the industry has really written off that. I mean, the American industry. Mm -hmm. that it's not worth the expense of coming here, that it's not worth maybe the film getting trashed here, they just don't want to do it anymore. And those kinds of films sometimes sometimes can give the festival a jolt. Yeah. I mean, here now, the, fest, the festival gets a jolt from Polanski just because he knows how to make a film so <laughs> yeah. well. But remember the thrill of seeing Mad Max. Yes, you know, that was wow, extraordinary. Uh, but Mad Max last year, Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, yeah. that was extraordinary. Yeah. So it was uh, Soderbergh's Liberace movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it means that you really have a range of movies, and this year you didn't have a range of movies. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I guess there's some intrigue with Netflix and Amazon titles. I mean, you... Well, I mean, which introduced its own kind of strange phenomenon, because with Okja, I kind of felt like, if, I mean, instead of having a studio, big, big studio film, you had to say Okja, but it's like a sort of anti-blockbuster film, it's sort of a subversive, you know, action film, so it didn't quite serve the same purpose, but uh, I don't know, maybe, yeah, if there is energy coming in, it's in from these, it's from these kind of no-strings-attached, you know, uh, internet-funded things. Yeah. Well, like a transitional year, maybe. Transitional year. <laughs> Let's hope so. A building year, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. All right, well, we will have to run off again. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank all of you for coming. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And pleasure. You know, same place, same time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see about the Antarctica ice sheet before we make predictions <laughs> for next year. All right. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold 
and edited by Michael Odemark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.